Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thielen Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS in Lucy, Dallas. Our arts editor is here too. Hello, Lucy. Hello, how are you doing? I'm all right. It's good to have you back uh, for this, our last podcast of the year. And our Christmas double issue is out this week. Um, is there anything you'd like to alert us to in well, particular? It's a cornucopia of delights. It really is. Of course. Yeah, there is a lot of wonderful stuff. Um, the lead is a wonderful piece by Carol Phillips about uh, Windrush. And I mean, he he talks about the Windrush scandal now, but he talks about the, the experience of the people who arrived and the betrayal that they felt at the at the, at the lack of welcome and, um, in fact, the hostility that many of them encountered, and 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 about feelings of belonging. And he talks about uh, Leeds and London because he says they're both his his cities. He's lived in both, and it's a very it's a it's a very strong piece, isn't it? It is. It's well, I mean, it sort of loops back in a way to. Um, something that Toby and I discussed on last week's show, the hostile environment in this country, you know, compounded by successive years of conservative government and how selective uh, can be uh, the approach to history. So, you know, we're talking about a generation, post-war migrants who perhaps never applied for a passport. They didn't see any reason to question well, they didn't have what to, they, did were they, told, they were told, which was uh, yeah. exactly which, which that they were legitimate um, they had a legitimate status and now suddenly, I think it started in 2017, didn't it? Suddenly they find themselves being categorised as illegal immigrants, mm. uh, despite that they, the fact that they had entered their country <laughs> in a perfectly legal manner. And, you know, so it sort of opens out into this really moving exploration of what it means to go home, to be home, the nature of the very the very thing and also the fact that in fact that really i mean and and tragically the hostile environment began a long time ago mm. i mean i know that that was an actual a phrase that was coined but in fact they arrived to to a hostile environment mm. and and the betrayal and the and as he says they just put put a bandage over it put an elastoplast over it and got on with it and you know some of the awful um injustices but it's a really powerful piece and a tribute yeah to a man named David Oluwale. Uh, he, as you said, it, this the piece focuses on Leeds and London in particular, and so he tells the story of David Oluwale, who was found dead in the River Eyre in the sixties uh, after a years and years of of being systematically harassed by mm. uh, Leeds City Police Force. And all of this, he sort of links into the idea of, of visibility. It's a <laughs> it's a basic it's a basic right to be seen, but what David Oluwale was being push towards was invisibility and mm. the mere fact of resisting of saying no this is my city and I will yeah. be in Leeds and I belong here so I don't and because he, he's saying well if you if you've gone somewhere else because clearly they were, they were really harassing him and perhaps if he had just gone somewhere else where they didn't know him but he belonged there that was mm. that was his city exactly it's a beautiful and moving piece um which we couldn't possibly do justice to obviously uh, in no. this brief chat all we can do is point uh, point to it and ask you all to go and read it there's a lot to puzzle over and be moved by in in the piece, and it's on the website now. Uh, 
But coming up on this week's show, of all the adjectives derived from writers' names so that something can be Beckettian, Dickensian or Freudian, perhaps none is so well absorbed in our culture as perpetually relevant-seeming as Orwellian. Callum Meekie will join us to discuss four new studies of George Orwell which explore from different angles how this legacy came to be. And as it's nearly Christmas, we'll also take a look at two new adaptations of Dickens's seasonal classic via a review, which begins brilliantly in the spirit. Can Dickens take it? Can we? But first, Lucy, I choose to imagine you now in a trench coat with a hat and a pipe leaning full tilt into our first topic. Quite right. I've also got trousers that are too short for me and conspicuously striped socks because we're going to talk about the filmmaker who made only a handful of films um, and the most ambitious for which he built his own city flopped at the box office and mystified viewers, though it delighted the critics. And although you may not have seen any of his films, you have certainly seen his influence in actors and filmmakers as various as Rowan Atkinson, Wes Anderson, David Lynch and Steven Spielberg. We are talking about Jacques Tati, and here to discuss him and a huge five-volume publication on his work, we're delighted to welcome Muriel Zaga. Muriel, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, do you think that people are still familiar with Tati's work, or is it more his influence now? Is he still a kind of national icon figure for the French? Is that still true? Uh, yes, I think he probably still is a national icon figure. I saw that recently the French Cinémathèque was having a retrospective about Louis de Funès, who is perhaps the most famous comic actor in France, and uh, someone who not was never a filmmaker, but but a, a performer, but a, a performer who featured in a lot of very very mainstream comedies. Uh, and the fact that Louis de Funès is being uh, sort of legitimized as a serious performer by La Cinémathèque Française is is interesting because I think. Uh, we, Tati's reputation is is made, but other people are now sort of battering down the door to be taken as seriously as uh, as Tati. In this country, he's probably better known as um, in the form of Mr. Bean. You know, people would be more familiar with Tati through the filter of, say, Mr. Bean's incarnation of him, or um, you know, other performers who mimicked his sort of mechanical disruption in the reality. Mm. Uh, it, it's probably very timely that there is this enormous comprehensive survey of his works because it's it's one thing to see the films and some people might, may have seen Playtime, some people may have seen Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, but you'd get a stronger charge from the films if you look uh, behind the films into uh, the making of the films, the uh, composition of the frames, without getting overly technical, but just trying to understand a little bit more how the films were made and what sort of filmmaker he was. Yes. C can you, um, could you, uh, this is a difficult thing for me to ask you, I'm afraid, but could you just briefly kind of chart the arc of his career for us, how how he became um, yeah. this actually rather serious filmmaker, though that's not what he's perceived as. No, so he um, he was born in 1907, and his real name is Tetyshev, because his father was a Russian emigre. Interestingly, his first bit of training was uh, as a picture framer, working in the family business of picture framing. So uh, meeting artists, looking at paintings, framing images that was in his blood from a very young age. And then uh, he went into the army and then he discovered sports. He became a keen rugby man and that inspired physical impersonations of his teammates. So on the back of that, he developed a musical number called Impression Sportive and uh, sports impressions. There are eyewitness descriptions of what it was like. And by all accounts, he was the most amazing mind. He, he could be uh, the ball, the foot, the player, the goalposts. He could be everything all at once. So uh, that was his first career, really, was to be a mime in musical. And then uh, he went into filmmaking, always really as an independent. So he had very early on his first, his, his own uh, production company. His first movie was uh, Jour de Fête. 
straight after the war, straight after the Second World War. That was very, very successful. And in it, he played a sort of hapless postman on a, bi on a bicycle. And he could have continued to churn out ruthlessly many, many, many movies with the same character of this postman. Uh, but instead of doing that, he created the Hulot incarnation, so maybe six years later, 1953, in Les Vacances, the Monsieur Hulot. And then there were four films featuring uh, Hulot this one, and then Mon Oncle, a few years later in the late 50s, and then Traffic, and um, Playtime and Traffic. The first two movies, uh, Hulot's Holiday and uh, Mon Oncle, were tremendous box office successes, really made his name, made his reputation, made some money, so he was able to make more films. And then Playtime and Traffic were total catastrophes and led to bankruptcy. So a really schizophrenic career in that sense, you know, not the sort of arc where someone starts up small and then gradually builds up a reputation and becomes a big star. But I suppose a story of someone who gains gradual control, total control of their output so that he manages to <laughs> alienate a large part of his uh, viewing public. And Traffic was, um, or started out as a collaboration, didn't it, with a with a Dutch filmmaker. So just from the way that you've described him and, and the way that he works, you could sort of see from the outset that that might be doomed to failure. The idea of him collaborating with anyone sounds quite unlikely. Yes, I think that was always very difficult. He did have long time um, collaborators as a, a man called Jacques Lagrange, who was his co-screenwriter and gag man who worked with him for a long time. Uh, but there are many, many terrible stories of misfires, of trying to work together with someone yet somebody else. I think he was probably very, very high maintenance, you know, someone with a complete vision and either you could enter into that vision or uh, that was the end of the collaboration. So for example, when it came to writing scores for his films, uh, he hired various people, he gave them a brief, or sometimes he wouldn't give them a brief, he'd say, he'd show them maybe a still from the film and say, off you go, you know, and then the hapless composer would try to score something and it would be wrong and then it would be wrong again and you'd have to keep trying. The shoots would go on for as long as they needed to. So, you know, the technicians and the actors had to keep going until they got it right according to his specifications. So not really the most easygoing person, not someone who would uh, work uh, collaboratively very easily. Yes, when you say that, and, and from reading your piece, it, you know, if you didn't know it was about a guy in two short trousers with his pipe always sticking out and falls over everything, he sounds like a, a, a really serious kind of auteur, you know, yes. from, <laughs> and, and, and as you say, very, very exacting, control freak, um, concerned with everything from the story to, the, to how it looked to the sound. Is that is that in fact the case? Yes, I think that's probably his paradox. And I mean, his tragedy was that what he wanted was to for people to take comedy seriously enough, seriously enough, not entirely seriously, but sufficiently seriously that they would watch his films with the same sort of exacting uh, attention as he'd put into composing them. One of the things that you notice uh, when you watch the films, again, in the light of some of the critical essays in this, in this study, is that... Uh, the sort of surface seductiveness of, say, Les Vacances de Monsieur Hulot or Mon Oncle, which are the most uh, sort of whimsical of his films, and also where um, you, the character of Hulot is more central, so you can really follow him, you identify with him. Um, so he's on holiday in Les Vacances de Monsieur Hulot, nothing much happens, but we follow his meanderings, and then and there are gags, uh, many visual gags, and then in Mon Oncle, um, there's a sort of contrast between the old neighborhood of Paris where um, Monsieur Hulot lives and where he has fun with his nephew and then the sterile modernist environment where the little boy lives with his parents. So that uh, is seductively, uh, it's very visual, very seductive visually. And there is a little bit of characterization and, and plot there. And so you might not notice immediately that these are in fact experimental films and that they are no less experimental than the later playtime traffic. It's funny because it, the, the, the films were very experimental, as you say, and, and took an enormous amount of, of work and detail and planning. But the thing about the nephew living in the rather sterile modernist area, he was sort of characterised sometimes as being a bit against modern life, wasn't he? A sort of architecture and technology. Can you um, tell us about Tattyville? 
Yes, dirty deal. So it's, it's true that Tati um, sort of bemoaned kind of sterile aspects of modern life. You know, he said, unfortunately, everything's turning into a clinic nowadays. So he did say that. And uh, Tettyville is the set that he built for playtime. He built a very intricate set that cost vast amounts of money and had to be rescued towards the end of the shoot by the Pompidou administration because they just they simply ran out of money. So he, he intuited the uh, La Défense um, area of Paris, the sort of business quarter that was built several years later. It, it was a total premonition of it. So there are these very modern glass um, office blocks and everything is rectilinear. Uh, all the inner spaces look like they could be a hospital or a waiting room in an airport or an office block. It's not quite clear what they are. Everything hums in a sinister machine-like way. The, the point was also to build something and to film something that was as beautiful as possible. So it's not to say that Tati didn't have any appreciation of modern architecture. So, you know, he wasn't Prince Charles. He didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you can say perhaps there are some reactionary elements in his, to his aesthetics, but not entirely in that way, in that the, the villa, the modernist villa in Mononcle, although it is funny and it looks like it has a face because it has portals for eyes, uh, is rather beautiful and inspired by uh, Villanoai, uh, Malle Stevens's uh, mm. beautiful Villanoai. So there is a, a real appreciation of modernist architecture and of trying to make things more beautiful, but there's also an awareness of how that might clash with human uh, error, human eccentricity, moments of absent-mindedness. And what he's trying to say is not there shouldn't be any modern architecture, but allow human beings to be human within all these straight lines. The temptation is sort of to say that he was he was born an outsider in, in a sense. You mentioned he was a child of immigrants. Uh, so he grew up sort of seeing things differently. I mean, he was a picture framer, which is a, a gift of a uh, of a metaphor there. But um, this, this line of yours seems, I think, particularly important. It seems to chime with everything you've been saying. Tati is not interested in realism, but in a constructed reality mm. everything seems to follow from that so he's sort of asking us to you know look at this building and ask what it's for and how we react with it and everything is seen from from a different perspective it is so for example in uh, playtime one of the groups of characters we follow is a group of american tourists who've come to see paris and they're obviously on some kind of european tour but they are in paris although it's not very obvious initially that this is paris because uh, modernism is a sort of international architectural language so actually we could be pretty much anywhere in the world but there's a moment for example where we glimpse the eiffel tower uh, one of the American women sees the Eiffel Tower, but she only sees it reflected in the glass door of an office block. And in fact, it's not the Eiffel Tower. It's, it is a cardboard cutout that Tati used as a prop. So it really, you are being asked to look quite hard at what you're seeing. And not only that, but also getting back to the picture framing and a sort of pictorial um, approach. He was a great composer of images. So he mm. would... He liked to, he liked a sort of multi uh, happening, multi gag frame. He liked a lot to be going on in every part of the frame. Collaborators of his report that he, he liked to, he said, Tati himself said he liked to compose the frame starting with the background. So uh, make sure that everything was in the right place and then time all the gags and all the movements of all the different um, performers and then gradually move forward to what, what was closest to the camera. He also directed um, very verbally. So he was always talking and directing like a, like a theater director really, so that the sound was always added in post-production. That's classic, that this kind of separation between the visual and then the, the sound element where it's all about composing layers rather than capturing reality. It's not about capturing reality, it's about constructing reality. In the way it's different, but you know, I'm thinking also of David Mamet, for example, a very different kind of filmmaker, but also someone who from the first frame of any of his films is saying with the frame, look carefully or you might miss something. I was gonna say as well that you say that there's a lot there's a lot happening there. And sometimes you're following, for instance, the groups of tourists. I mean, was he slightly trapped by the popularity of Hulot? Because he didn't want him to be the big star, the big comedian, did he, really? No, 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 he didn't. I mean, he turned down, for example, um, 
I mean, I don't know actually that he turned it down, but he did. It didn't come to fruition, and I imagine that's because there were problems, artistic vision problems. There was a plan to make a, a Hulot movie in uh, Hollywood, co-starring Sophia Loren in the, in the late fifties, and I, I really wish that had been made because it sounds <laughs> wonderful. We'd love to see the interaction between Hulot and Sophia Loren on screen. Well, she was very, very good. She was a very good comic actress, wasn't she? She is. She she was she she is a very good comedian. So it might have worked very well, and it might have led to more films. Who knows? Uh, but um, it, it would, as with the Postman in Jour de Fête, it, because the Vacances de Monsieur Hulot was such a hit, and then Mon Oncle, it would have been very easy to churn out more Hulot movies, and that's what the public wanted. He kept being asked for more. So, and instead being contrary and because that was not really what he was trying to do, he wasn't trying to be the star of the movies. He was trying to teach people how to watch reality. So uh, Hulot recurs in Playtime and Traffic, but as a more marginal figure, more abstract figure, almost just like a sort of force in motion rather than a man with a story or anything to do. Uh, and then Ideally, Tati would have liked to kill him off. There were plans also to, uh, another collaboration that didn't come to fruition, unfortunately, was with uh, the band Sparks. This is oh, a band yes. that still song. They put a new album out, it was very good. I'm a big Sparks fan, and I was delighted to discover that Tati and Sparks had considered working together. Uh, he wanted them to score a movie called Confusion that he was going to make in the 1970s when they, uh, you know, they, they, were became, they were becoming quite famous. And uh, this movie would have been about the death of the fictional Hulot and then there would have been a lot of different reincarnations of him in the film. I'm not entirely sure how it would have worked, but it was set in the world of television and then the male brothers would have played American TV producers who came to the rescue of a French TV company. So this desire to actually kill off Hulot, get rid of him, let him dissolve into the fabric of the film is is there from from the moment where he becomes successful. That's his paradox. Oh, that would have been extraordinary, wouldn't it? Because you can <laughs> see how the, the 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 aesthetic of Sparks would absolutely and, and the and the choreography would absolutely Indeed. suit him. And yeah. how gutted everyone would have been if he'd killed off Hulot <laughs> in a kind of artistic in a yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'd have been devastated. Um and you say that this um, this work that you've reviewed for us, this huge five-volume epic, it's called The Definitive Jacques Tati. Is it definitive? Does it tell you, do you think, what, everything we need to know? I'm sure there's more to come, I imagine. I mean, it's it's pretty definitive in the sense that the, the editors of the project were given access to the Tati archives. Um, for example, you know, there are Tati was someone who kept notebooks, so there are many, many notebooks, lists of sound effects or materials he was going to use for sound effects, including, you know, tomatoes, an old fridge, a long piece of string, whatever it was. So that's quite fun. And then there are other notebooks with uh, ideas for gags. So one of the ones, again, I would have loved to have seen come to life is the kick to the jaw in the drawing room, I think. He just wrote that sentence. So I don't know whether Ouch. he wished that or whether he thought that would make a hilarious gag in another film. So it's pretty comprehensive. You get just the, the complete scripts, you get a lot of critical essays. Uh, a lot of what's written about is sound effects, uh, the use of scores, uh, architecture, all of that. I mean, the meticulousness of the soundscapes that he designed, the, 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 I mean, genius is not overstating it at all. Some of the things that he used to create the effects, I think there's a particular point you describe um, for someone's high-heeled shoes, the use of a <laughs> ping-pong ball. Yes, yeah, so that's in uh, Mon Oncle. Um, the mother of the little boy, Madame Arpel, is always sort of um, clip-clopping around her house, and her house is very, very echoey, like a lot of these modernist interiors. And so in order to get the right tinny sound, he used bouncing ping-pong balls. Uh, but there are so many other examples of that, you know. he It's, an, again, fun to remember that he was a mime and therefore someone who initially trained to express things silently and then developed this sort of uh, guilty pleasure in sound later on, became a sound obsessive. He really luxuriated so, in it. He did. <laughs> he luxuriated in it. The sound for Playtime alone took a whole year to compose. 
So that's the sort of thing we are looking at is not just adding sound in post-production, which sounds like a fairly mechanical, you know, bit of editing, but really composing a sound score of uh, voices, um, you know, um, outside noise, isolated sounds of objects. It's not the usual hierarchy where you would record a lot of ambient noise and then you'd and then you know the dialogue would be obviously uh, foregrounded none of that it's everything is really on the same level everything you hear is perfectly isolated in that moment so it's a way of reconstructing the experience of perception where when you hear the ping pong balls that's all there is in that moment for you and um uh, here's a here's a horrible parting question i'm afraid if we could only watch one uh, Tachi's film, which one would you recommend? I mean, this is terrible. Very, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think for someone who comes to Tati uh, completely cold, then probably I would start with Mon Oncle um, because it's lovely. And um, it's also, it already contains some of the more serious preoccupations. But if you if you want to start at a higher level, then go straight into playtime. playtime. That would have been that would have been his own choice, wasn't it? I think Even probably it. it was his yeah. favorite. It was the apple favorite. of his eye. The apple of his eye, exactly. And so he would probably have said that that's the film that tells people what he was trying to do. So probably in that sense, that is the most efficient way of uh, acquiring Tetti. Of mainlining Jacques Tetti. Mainlining. <laughs> Brilliant, we will try it. Muriel, many thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. Still to come on the show, the man, the books, the woman, and well, the readers who made Eric Arthur Blair into the totemic George Orwell, and two miserly and yet not so miserly entertainments for the season. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, and before we get to George Orwell, Lucy Dallas, you're leading us on a festive detour. I am because this year, even though um, it has been rather difficult to go to the theatre, we have managed, I'm very happy to say, to run um, our yearly festive Christmas show piece because I think we found the one show that was actually on in a theatre that you could go to. Unfortunately, everything's just been closed down again in London. Um, but we've got a lovely piece by David Horsepool of this parish of um, a retelling of A Christmas Carol. 
at the Bridge Theatre with Simon Russell Beale, the wonderful Simon Russell Beale as Scrooge and two uh, two other actors playing all the other parts. And he's also, um, there is a, a new filmed, a kind of dance version of A Christmas Carol, which also has Simon Russell Beale as Scrooge. I think does, he's Scrooge does in that one. Simon, Simon Russell Beale have to be in <laughs> he does, Yes, he does. I thought you were going to say, does he dance? And he doesn't because they have dancers and sort of puppets and things like that. It's just voiced. It looks rather beautiful, actually. Uh, yes, he does have to. This year, Simon Russell Beale is doing all the Christmas shows. Um, and I was just, I was so happy. In fact, we that there were an, a couple of pantomimes as well. We often do pantomimes, which is, you know, a wonderful Christmas tradition. And there were a couple of pantomimes um, which opened rather late, uh, so we couldn't cover. But unfortunately, a couple of them have opened for about three days. Oh. And, and, and I, I've now had to close again. But I did want to mention, um, I think those two, certainly the film you can watch online. I'm not sure whether the bridge is streamed. I'm sure they will have Well, something. I wonder, yeah, whether they might be, um, what's yeah. the word of the year, pivoting. <laughs> yes. They might be pivoting to that uh, any any day now. Because, and, I mean, it is it, since the Christmas Carol was published in 1843, I think, David Horsball points out, not a year has gone by in the century and three quarters since that... Um, the fable was first written without it being performed at Christmas time. I don't know whether that's without it being live streamed true. at Christmas time. <laughs> yeah, but it cannot stop now. <laughs> well, it really isn't because actually there's the old Vic. They're live streaming their Christmas Carol, and I was looking. There's some in the states as well. If you can't get the British one, there's something which sounds rather brilliant called Estella Scrooge, which is sounds a like a kind of mashup. I think it is. It's a Dickensian musical extravaganza. Ah. Uh, which you can stream. And there's also something called A Christmas Carol Live in which uh, Jefferson Mays plays all the characters, over 50 of them. Uh, that was originally from uh, the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles. God, that sounds exhausting. Well, I mean, yeah. So there's plenty of Christmas carols around, um, basically. They're, as I say, now online. And lots of panto as well. The um, Lots of the panto has moved online, the National Theatre panto and, and lots of others. So it's still possible to enjoy all that sort of thing online, so, I think. So you're not let off the, the festive hook that easily then? Absolutely not. No, no pandemic will stop <laughs> will stop this machine. It's behind you. No, it isn't, sadly. Still in the middle of it. <laughs> well, um, it's not easy to move uh, balletically from Christmas shows and the pantomime season to George Orwell. Although I suppose, actually, now that you've said it, Lucy, he's behind you could have worked in the place of Big Brother is watching you. This week, we're running a long piece by Callum Miki, which considers four new books on the life and legacy of this writer. One of the authors calls the most important since Shakespeare and the most influential writer who has ever lived. Here on the line to tell us more is Callum Miki. Hello, Callum. Hello, Sia. You say in your piece that 2020 was supposed to be the year or a year uh, of George Orwell. And it was, wasn't it? Although perhaps not in the way we might have expected. Yeah, so he had a very brief moment in the sun where there were shows on the radio and uh, even a couple on TV, I think, um, going through going through his life. And that, I think, would have been that. Um, and there might have been almost an appetite for, I think, maybe even moving on, or at least moving on for a little bit from George Orwell. Uh, but it seems to be the case that there's something in his writing that a lot of people have found helpful in describing some of the phenomena that we are all now so familiar with through the through the coronavirus pandemic. Because, I mean, it all started in, so January would have been the start of this anniversary year, a slightly odd, you know, awkward anniversary and it's 70 years since the death. So it's not, it's not exactly a major one, but he... Orwell, as as you're as you're 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 getting out there, there's just something with Orwell, the perception of Orwellianness everywhere. It's just so ingrained in our culture that every year is a year of Orwell, but in particular this one. It makes you wonder how journalists and commentators would have described the world had he had Orwell not written 1984. Quite frankly, right? I, yeah, I wonder, I wonder about that. I wonder about that all the time. Yeah, like what Sigmund Freud would have been famous for if thousands of years before there hadn't been a, a tragedy written about about a guy who accidentally slept with his mother um, <laughs> and yeah so I think th there was a, there was the initial uh, kind of frenzy of uh, appearances of the word Orwellian 
around the period of the first national lockdown, where I, I mentioned a few, I mentioned a few things in the pieces. The idea of um, morning PE lessons being broadcast into homes or something very Orwellian or 1984ian at least about that. Um, the the almost encouragement to to kind of shop your neighbours for for breaking the rules is is exactly what what Winston Smith is is frightened of with his neighbours the Parsons at the start of 1984, and that word appeared a lot uh, in that in that time in coverage of those of those measures. That actually has faded away a little bit. I've not been so conscious of those sorts of descriptions now maybe it's just gotten old or we've become so familiar with it that it doesn't need a, a particular language to describe it it does get bandied about a lot doesn't it it seems a little bit unfair to to call joe wicks orwellian <laughs> it wasn't actually <laughs> compulsory it was just uh, that that's people, true the people don't like the idea that they sort of being told what to do do you think as, as soon as any there's any whisper of that something becomes being called orwellian I think so, yeah. But later, later in the piece, I tried to sort of suggest that there's something in Orwell's writing that we spend less time talking about, which is something more positive, something more more hopeful. Um, that's about that's about togetherness and it's about a, a people moving forward. It, it's perhaps not present in in 1984 so much. It's definitely there in other parts of his writing and maybe yeah maybe that would be a, a more accurate description of the the joe wicks phenomenon that it's a that it's a type of almost i would suggest orwellian togetherness this idea uh, or this habit that we have of of using orwell as a kind of the author of one of the books dj taylor uh, calls him a, a moral litmus paper orwell's status as a kind of moral litmus paper uh, that was an almost immediate effect of the work on publication wasn't it I mean it was it was granted that role almost from the get-go so yeah that's that's absolutely right there there is a there's a sense that Orwell since the end of the second world war has been used has been used in this in this exact way one of the other books that I that I reviewed for the paper um is by John Rodden and his work his work as a whole not not, not least in the piece that I that I reviewed Recently, it traces that really, uh, really carefully the way the way in which Orwell's work, partly through features that are there in the writing, but also just through sheer historical chance, um, arrived at these moments in history where people were looking for language that would help them to describe incredibly critical global situation. And so, what we have almost always done then since then is is become used to using that using that language using those those words and those concepts for which orwellians is a kind of umbrella and did orwell i mean he he knew the success of of 1984 for about 6 months i think before he 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 died do we do we know whether he had a sense of what the work was becoming you know what his name was becoming in effect just an, an inkling of it in that early stage that is a very good question, and one that I can't provide a very full answer to. I'm afraid he he was furious throughout the, those short months of of kind of real fame on the back of 1984, with constant attempts to, in his view, misrepresent that novel. That kind of was built on the back of a quite already by that point deeply ingrained history of misreading Animal Farm, which was an almost instantly enormous success in America and was in that instant success turned very quickly to to, to, to its kind of obvious propaganda. Well, I mean, Taylor's book is, is it's interesting because it's a biography of a book. It's biography of 1984, of Orwell's most famous work rather than of the man himself. So that sort of captures the fact that everything that Orwell had done up to the point of that publication, the, the shadow of it casts back in time, doesn't it? As a, as a scholar of Orwell, do you ever worry that there's a kind of a distorting effect there? Uh, you know, are the, the 1930s works neglected? Do you hanker for the opportunity to talk about Keep the Aspidistra Flying? Um, no, not, not, that, <laughs> not that one. I think, uh, I think Coming Up for Air is, is a novel which has a lot of merit. In its own right, as a novel, and I think it, I think it is a good book. Um, I think it's quite a funny book as well, and I think 
we we render Orwell in the way that we talk about him a lot as quite a one-dimensional writer, as if he were just this kind of sternly benevolent figure who sat kind of in judgment on the 1930s and 40s. And that's definitely there. That is a that is a, a constant thread to his to the whole of his writing, really. But there's there are layers to that, as there as we would expect there to be in any in any good writer's work. And one of those is humor, which you find in you find strongly, I think, the, the most strongly in coming up for air. But I think even in the way that we talk about 1984 and in the way that DJ Taylor talks about 1984, there are other things going on in that novel that make its constant kind of usage as a metaphor for things that are wrong in our world today problematic. I don't think it's a, a hopeful novel, but I don't think we would enjoy it in the way that I do think that people enjoy it when they read it, if all it were, were a sort of cataloguing of the ways in which human beings can mistreat one another. So I think we're, I think we're doing Orwell a disservice by using his name only in this way. And I think we're doing ourselves a, a disservice in kind of blocking other ways of reading and other ways of enjoying his work. Well, and in fact, I was, I was going to say, I mean, being a specialist, an Orwell specialist, um, so much of what you do must be about correcting and expanding. It must be, it must be quite frustrating a lot of the time to, to kind of push back against those, those perceptions, those limitations. It's frustrating. It's also, it's enjoyable though, because I think, I really think these things are there. And so finding them or, or drawing them out or discussing them, there's a positive aspect to that as well, which which frustration wouldn't it wouldn't cover. For instance, the, the character the character of Julia in 1984, she's typically read as a as all of Orwell's characters actually, but especially his female characters are. She's read as a a sort of a, a very flat character, a kind of a kind of cipher almost for. Well, actually, as a, as a cipher for um, women in Orwell's in Orwell's life, and I think that's unfair. I think it's I, I think it's hard to look at 1984 and think that Winston Smith is the hero. It's hard to look at a man who takes a book that's called the the Theories and Principles of Oligarchical Collectivism, I think, and he takes that book to bed with him. And he reads it to the woman that he's going to bed with. And and she, I mean, she falls asleep, doesn't she? So there's humor there for a start. There's there's humor there. She she also does exactly the right thing, I think, in that situation. He's re- he's reading that book aloud to her, and long excerpts from the from that that fictional book are included in the novel, and they are boring. I can't imagine that Orwell's purpose here is to say that what that book that Winston Smith holds in his hands is the solution to or is the is the pathway out of the totalitarian regime that they that they live in julia's implied solution of togetherness connection physical connection seems to me to be a much more believable one and i think if you if you look at the novel in that way you do find something in it that is that is less gloomy that does offer us some sort of hope for a kind of a future that we might want to live in. Sort of on a connected point, I suppose. I mean, one of one of the books uh, of the four that you that you review here, one of them, that, the ones that really stands out, is is by Sylvia Top, entitled Eileen. Um, I mean, it's not often that book to do with George Orwell relegates him to the subtitle. Who was Eileen? So it's worth saying first of all that I think that was the most fantastic book. Eileen was Orwell's first wife and was also you you learn from the book significant and interesting character in her own in her own right so she devoted her life almost entirely to her husband or more exactly to her husband's pseudonym and the work that that pseudonym produced and there are hilarious snippets in Sylvia Topp's book 
from various letters and her diary and things that she wrote, uh, kind of ironically commentating on the way in which her existence had become sort of subordinated to that of this uh, kind of made up figure of of George Orwell. I mean, she dedicated her life to her husband um, for the relatively short time that they were together before she died. But she also worked and I think she made most of the money. And part of her work was at the Ministry of Information, wasn't it? So presumably that, uh, in, a, in a very obvious way, must have fed into his work. Uh, that's right, yeah. And the, the, the Ministry of Information was hosted at Senate House, in, as part of, which is now part of the University of London. And that, uh, that building gives the model for the Ministry of Truth in 1984. And it will undoubtedly be the case that the, the conversations and the various tidbits that Eileen was bringing home from work will have germinated some of the ideas that Orwell then put into 1984. I think as well, reading, reading the book, um, that some of the humour that I, that, I, that I referred to as being present in Orwell, but often, often ignored, will have come from Eileen. It does seem to be the case that Orwell was a gloomy man, even if I'm sure he was capable of, of the, the sort of witticisms that, that I think are included in some of his, in some of his novels, uh, Julia falling asleep being, being one of them. It's hard not to wonder if the experience of reading a textbook aloud in bed and having the woman <laughs> in bed with him falling asleep may not have been, had a, a moment in, in reality as well. Slight autobiographical tinge. <laughs> per, perhaps, yeah, perhaps. She has to take some of the credit, I think, for the for the moments of humour that are there, and for some of the kind of more ironic flourishes that are in that are in the writing. Um, she she did a lot of editing. She did a lot of typing for Orwell as well. And I guess we'll never know the extent to which her influence can be felt in the she, in the in the novels. She was she was a poet um, as well, wasn't she? And there's, I mean, she 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 figures in in much more. Uh, kind of a, a, a deeper, uh, more moving way, I think, in, in the way you describe the title of one of her poems, um, perhaps offering the title to 1984. And then later you you write about the opening of that book um, and how it relates back to her. The word clock was the last word in the final letter that Eileen wrote to, to George Orwell, Eric Arthur Blair. And... Uh, he probably received that letter after, after she died. He wasn't with her when she died. He was working for the Observer in Paris while she was on her own at a hospital in Newcastle. And Sylvia Top argues convincingly that the, the clock striking 13 at the start of 1984 in that famous opening sentence is Orwell's way, along with the title of nodding to Eileen, who typically in biographies of Orwell is an overlooked figure. I said earlier that the Orwell's female characters are typically described as, as flat. That's absolutely true of, uh, of his wife in the, in the multiple biographies that we have of Orwell, which is why, again, this is such an, an important book, I think. The idea of the clock striking 13 and the dissonant note that that strikes for us right at the start of 1984 can be read as moving is the word that you used in the question. I think that's right. I think it's quite a beautiful metaphor for a, a life lived in grief. It's like the, the world is familiar. There's something missing and there's something new there that makes it worse. That's how the opening sentence of 1984 has always read to me as having this augmentation, this addition of something, something more militaristic, something more brutal to it. And Sylvia Topps writing about the relationship between Orwell and his first wife and the, the particular observation about the clocks added a dimension to that interpretation where it seems not just brutal and militaristic, but also sad. The idea of a clock chiming is one I think that we're ingrained to to, to read 
moving emotions into. And the clock striking 13, it seems to me that the emotion to read into that is grief. Well, it sounds like a very worthy addition to the scholarship, as is your piece. So thank you very much for writing it. Callum Miki, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Muriel Zagaha and Callum Miki. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Lee Meyer. This has been, as mentioned, our last episode of the year. So we look forward to coming back in the first week of 2021, refreshed or at the very least still standing. Until then, goodbye. Lucy Dallas, would you like to spread festive cheer? No, thanks. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.